Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I want to extend a super special invitation. November 8th through the 11th, right here in Boston, Massachusetts, we're hosting Inbound 2016. It is our event where we bring together thousands of marketing and sales professionals from around the globe to come to one spot, share all the latest and greatest in terms of tactics, strategies, best practices, so we can all learn from each other. Over 250 sessions, some amazing keynotes, including Alec Baldwin, Anna Kendrick. It's going to be great. I have even better news for you. As a Growth Show listener, you get a free community pass to Inbound 2016. Just go to inbound.com to register and use the code PODCAST. That's capital P-O-D-C-A-S-T. We hope to see you at Inbound. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. If you've ever heard about Trello or Stack Overflow, you're going to be excited about today's guest. Today I get to talk with Michael Pryor, who's the co-founder of Fog Creek Software, the company from which those two very famous, very popular products spun out. We get to hear from Michael about Michael's experience starting Trello, about how they think about pricing, and how they listen to their customers and help them inform future product development. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Gross Show. So I would love to just start off by talking about the beginning of Trello, going all the way back. It started as a side project uh, mm-hmm. that which came out of Fog Creek Software. Can you tell me about how the idea came about and how you actually carved out the time to work on it? So my co-founder, Joel Spolsky, and I started Fog Creek back in 2000. And at the time in New York, the only place that you could get a job as a developer was either a bank or an advertising shop, mm-hmm. like basically your back office, right? And um, we wanted to build a place where the developers were in the front. And so we say, hey, let's build a software company. Uh, I don't know what we're going to make, <laughs> but we'll figure it out. You know, in the early days of Fog Creek and the culture of Fog Creek was to experiment and build new things and try new things. And uh, we started to formalize that a little bit into Creek Weeks is what we called them. And basically take a week and build a product or hmm. try an idea. It didn't have to be about anything that we were working on. And then see what came out on the other end. Sometimes, you know, we'd get to the other end and it would just be a fun toy. And sometimes those ideas would have a little bit more staying power and we'd pursue them more. And, you know, we might spend a month or two and and then decide that wasn't the thing we wanted to do um, or we'd invest more in it. And that was one of the Creek Weeks was how Trello came to be. So do you remember that conversation where you and your co-founder decided that Creek Weeks should be a thing that you, you not only had the time to be able to dedicate to a side project, but also that it would be something to be good for your company? Well, I think that was um, something we came to organically when we internally felt that the, the employees were looking for time to do that and they didn't have an excuse to do it. And so we had to create a space for them. And so we said, um, well, we just don't want to leave it open-ended. So we'll try to do something and give it a time frame. And how about a week? You know, a week is a good, we'll protect them from the other things that they need to do on a day-to-day basis. And so somebody would put a, a sign on their door and close their door and it would say Creek Week and you were not supposed to go in and interrupt them while they were doing that. And so that just gave them some space to play around with an idea. 
Um, and it was, it was you know, the, the formalization of an informal process. That, right. So, so it was full stop on all our other work while you were working on a Creek Week project. Yeah, so basically it was like permission to not do the things that you would normally do. That's pretty wild. I mean, I think, you know, you have to keep that core business going and to be able to just completely take some of your best employees off of the off the day-to-day is, is kind of, it's a sacrifice. Yeah, it is. And especially when you're running a small company and you literally have more things to do than you have time to do them. Yeah. So it's not like there's, oh, I have some extra hours and I guess I'll try this side project. It's like, no, things are breaking. I need you. But no, the founders have said, this is a great week, so I have the permission to do this. Most people want to build products that have some sort of virality built into them. Taking that from a concept into something that's actually inherent to the way that your product works two very different things. Where do you see um, that fitting into product development? Where do you see companies going wrong with that? I think um, we didn't. We never focused on virality. I mean, we knew we were building a collaborative app. So we knew um, from the start that it had to be free because we didn't want to put any friction in people getting to use it and getting the value out of it. It's also a very uh, crowded space, the collaboration space, yeah. and people trying to attack it from so many different ways. Um, but we thought more about what is the voice of this product? What is, how does it, what is the brand? How does it speak to people? Like, I think as software becomes more and more of a commodity, like it's easier to build things, which is awesome because then more things get built. But it also means how do you separate your idea from everyone else, right? Like it used to be when I was in college, I made a bunch of money um, building database backed websites because I knew how to write Perl and I knew what CGI bin meant. And, you fast forward to today and anyone can build a web app in a couple minutes. And so, you know, as you build those abstractions up, what makes your software valuable to people? And we spent a lot of time thinking about that around the voice, you know, just things like like Taco, the mascot, mm-hmm. like um, the way that the product actually, you know, when you grab a card and you go to drag it, it like kind of tilts subtly, which was a in effect, it was an interesting effect at the time. It's yeah. pretty common now, but at the time that we built the app, it was pretty interesting. Also, if you change the Trello board and I'm looking at the same board on a different computer, it updates instantly, which is common now also, but at the time was not. Those are it's major, yeah. Those are sort of the magical things that we wanted people to feel when they were using Trello. So we talk about that a lot actually internally is, you know, all those aspects, the voice, the brand, you know, the... Uh, adorable taco like is that enough there have been copycats right i mean people there have been people who are companies that have taken elements of that and commoditized it as you're saying how far does the brand take you with that how do you kind of handle those copycats as they come along i think like it's not enough to have a catchy marketing slogan or like a you know to it's interesting because i think a lot of the the things that people love about trello the things that they point out that are different that are special they didn't come from us telling our the people that were building Trello to be creative. Like mm. They weren't like, hey, go be creative or go be fun. They were just a production of the fun people that we had hired. Um, like an example, we just have one developer in particular that just, he, he, he'll add that extra little special to everything. Like when you go to log into Trello, the, the sample text email addresses that come up are kind of funny. Yeah. Like, you you know, and it's a common thing now, but I think at the time he did it, it was pretty rare. And it was, no one ever told him to do that, right? Yeah. That was just the kind of people that we hired and we said, you have the freedom to build that kind of application. And when even Taco, the idea for Taco came about just because the designer thought it would be interesting to take 
Joel's dog and turn it into our mascot. And the way Taco looks and the fact that Taco says Rue instead of Wolf. Yeah. Like a dog. Like just silly things like that. You know, those certainly aren't, um, without the app, without all those other things, um, they wouldn't amount to much. But together, it's what makes Trello different than some copycat clone. I think that's interesting too, because all of that comprises the experience, right? And so there's there's a set of features, um, and there's certainly the functionality of, of the software, but that can be replicated or mm-hmm. um, com- copied, uh, as it were. But the experience of the people who use it and the, and the sort of input of the people who are building that, the humanity of that, I think does kind of create a unique um, overarching understanding of your product. We, we also like had this idea from early on that we would shoot gamma rays at Trello. So what I mean by that is... Yeah, you're going to have to explain that well, one. Well, you know, just like mutate it. Try something different. Yeah. Like don't, don't, don't think that what we have right now is what's working. Like try something different and make sure that that's not working. And, um, you know, example I give is we built in video chat into Trello. So when you're looking at a board, you can invite people to a video conference. And you see their faces at the bottom of the board. Um, and we used a technology that's built into web browsers called WebRTC. It's kind of early in mm-hmm. its infancy. It's not great. It kind of falls down a bunch. Yeah. But we relied on it as the core of our video chat interface. And we thought, this would be cool. If you're in a board, you click a button, everyone's in the video conference. And so we rolled it out internally to play with and to a couple select customers to see. And the problem was that when that technology fell down, there was no way for us to fix it because it was kind of built into the web browser itself. Uh, yeah. But it ended up making us look bad. Like people would say, oh, your video chat is broken. And there was like, well, it's just the technology isn't good enough, you know? Yeah. So um, we killed it and we shelved it. But we didn't think of it as a failure. It was more like we tried it. We right. experimented with it. And um, we'll continue to do things like that. And maybe not everything works. I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, stepping back. There was a, a decision point at which... Trello got big enough where um, you guys decided to split it out from the core company and, and turn it into its own company. Can you walk me through your memory of, of that moment and what it meant for you personally, uh, leaving sort of the company that that you had founded or co-founded and, and going out on this new venture? Sure. So the history is that actually prior to that, we had started another company called Stack Overflow, which right. was a, a joint venture between Fog Creek and Jeff Atwood who mm-hmm. wrote a blog called Coding Horror, who's also another blogger like Joel was, my business partner. And, um, you know, we decided to spin that off into its own company and had, that was the first time we'd ever done it. Some of the employees went from Fog Creek to Stack Overflow. Um, Joel went over as the CEO. That was a very difficult time. So when we did decide, and the reason why we decided to do that with Trello, even though we were like, we're never going to do that again, <laughs> um, was because we got to a point where Trello was growing quickly. There was so much low-hanging fruit that we wanted to go after. There was four things that we wanted to do with the development team, but we had to do them one after another instead of all at the same time, only because we didn't have enough people. Right. Because we were essentially paying for Trello. Fog Creek's profits were paying for Trello. And so we said we had investors that were willing to give us money and we're like, okay, this is the time, right? So let's do it again. And we took a lot of the things, the lessons that we learned from the first time about communication, about giving people answers, about how it's going to work. Um, and when we went through it the second time, it was less painful, not painless. Not painless, no. yeah. Um, and, you know, it is it is hard. And at that time, I had, I had been spending half of my time writing Fog Creek and half of my time as the CFO at Stack Overflow. 
Um, so we hired a real finance person mm-hmm. <laughs> instead that's of a me. Really? <laughs> and uh, had him join Stack Overflow. And then at the same time, that sort of opened up an opportunity for me to spend that period of time running Trello. And uh, so now Joel focuses mainly on Stack Overflow. I focus mainly on Trello. And we both contribute to the management team at Fog Creek. Got it. What do you mean by um, by giving people answers and communication? What specifically was the, the lesson there you were trying to repeat? You know, when you do something that has a lot of unknowns, it's better to communicate that you're not sure how it's going to work out. Because if you don't, people will try to fill in the blanks. Um, the best case is if you actually give them an answer. Sometimes you don't know. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, the first time through, we were kind of like, don't worry, it'll all work out. But people get frightened and they get scared of change and they're always imagining the worst possible case when when there's a change um and so it's it's a it's a lot about preemptively thinking of their concerns and trying to address them up front because if you do that yeah. then most people will be like okay i know what the answer is or i know that they've thought about this problem i know they might not have an answer but they're thinking about it um you're still gonna have people that are like i, I like that the way it was before Right. You know, I mean, even with Trello, we were at Fog Creek. We were just a bootstrap, profitable software company. Trello was a VC backed, high growth startup. Right. Totally different. Completely different business. Yeah. And so the employees that had joined Fog Creek and had been spun off into Trello were now inside a different company that some of them were excited about being in that kind of company and some of them weren't. Um, So it's just a process that you have to go through to understand where everyone is. Do you think you're always going to lose people in a situation like that? Maybe not always. I don't know if you're always are. I just think that you have to be prepared for it. I think, and it's just like another case is uh, Fog Creek early on. We started the company in New York because we wanted a place to work at for developers in New York City. Yeah. Over time, that was actually really good for our recruiting early on because we were the only software shop in New York. Over time, you know, Facebook gets started. They open an office in New York. Google opens an office. There's Etsy, Kickstarter, all these startups. It becomes harder for us to recruit in New York. But we start experimenting with remote work because now the tools are getting better. Um, we're building tools for, yeah. that, for that kind of scenario. And we start experimenting with that. And that opens us up to a whole nother talent pool, right? So then we're able to hire people wherever they live. And now we have a recruiting edge again because we can just find the best people wherever they are. Yeah. But that meant that over time, the makeup of our company became primarily remote instead of primarily in HQ. And that there were people in HQ that were kind of like, you know, I, I kind of liked it better when everyone was here. Mm. Like I it was certainly for the remote people. They're like, this is amazing. I can work for this great company. I can work where I live. Right. And, but for the people that were in HQ, they were like, I liked it better when all my friends and coworkers were here. And so then they, it became a different kind of company. Yeah. That's so that one issue is something that I think is being felt more and more by companies as they not only hire remotely, but also go global and, and start to open other offices in different places you know, have you learned anything about how to mitigate that? I mean, there's like you're constantly if you're growing as a, as a company, you're constantly going through change. And even if you're not growing, the, the environment is changing around you. Right. It's yeah. just and it, it's I think it's a lot about understanding what the friction is today and how to relieve it. So, for example, when we started going more remote, we realized we'd have a lot of meetings where four people would be in a room and one person would be on the TV. You know, because there was only one remote person or right. two remote people. And those meetings, that person was always super disadvantaged. Like they were always like 
they couldn't really there's that filter they, yeah they just couldn't like jump into the conversation and no one's really paying attention to them because they're just <laughs> a head on the wall you yeah. know so we were like look if we're going to be more remote we have we have to have a remote first culture which means that even if everyone's in hq for a meeting just do it on the zoom or you know if there's one person remote do it with the zoom like don't do it with the google hangout don't Oh, that's interesting. Put one person on the wall. So you had everybody stay at their desk. Yes. And exactly. use. Oh, that's really exactly. interesting. You don't hear that that often. Exactly. So we never had a meeting where one person was on a TV. Huh. And and then we also did things like we realized that the serendipitous meeting of people in the office, even if they didn't work in the same team, that doesn't happen when you're remote. Remote, it's great. You work with all your coworkers. You get to know them because you're doing work together. Right. But if you're in marketing, you're never going to meet the salespeople. You're never going to meet the devs. Like, you didn't even know who they are. And you can do an offsite like once a year or twice a year, or whatever, super expensive, time consuming. Sure. But what do you do week to week? So, we invented this thing called Mr. Rogers, where um, there's actually a guy at Fog Creek came up with this idea. It was um, just an opportunity where you get randomly paired with some other people and you get on a conference and for half an hour on Fridays, you just kind of shoot the shit. Right? Yeah. You just talk about whatever. And um, it's just an opportunity to be like, oh, where do you live? What are you doing? Like, uh, what are you working on? You know, that conversation that you might have in the kitchen that you didn't have before, we had to actually not force it. Like, you're not forced to go to this Mr. Rogers, as we call it. Like, you, you don't have to go, but it, it provides that opportunity for the people that want it. And I think over time, we've learned more and more how those communication channels break down as you get bigger and bigger. And it's like, okay, we need to fix this or adjust this or change this or communicate in a different way. Cause right. the way that we used to do it when we were 20 people isn't working anymore. Okay. So you're going through this sort of expansion of your company internally. And that means more and more remote workers, but then you also almost not just over a year, I think after you split off, went through an international expansion of the product as well. Um, and you guys did that in a kind of a unique way. Can you tell me a little bit about how you brought Trello to other countries? So early on, we didn't, we'd never had experience doing this before. So it was another gamma ray, right? Like, let's try something and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, worked with somebody in Brazil um, who was really smart. She was helping us figure this out, which countries to go after first. Like, where do we want to internationalize? We knew if we were going to build Trello for all teams, like we had to think about all teams, not just mm-hmm. people in the United States or in English-speaking countries. So we thought about, we looked at our top countries that people are already using it in, and we sort of picked those off. So it was Germany, France, um, Brazil, and Spain. And we said, okay, we'll try a couple different things. So in Brazil, we'll translate it into Portuguese, but we'll also do a bunch of marketing in the country. Um, in Germany, we'll just do the translation and talk to some PR people, but we won't invest a lot of, you know, on the ground type of efforts. Yeah. Um, and Spain will only translate it. So we'll just translate to Spanish and see what happens. Um, we won't actually do any marketing. Uh, and and the what was the other one? Oh, France. I was going to go to France, speak at a conference, visit different incubators, like, you know, basically full court press in, in France. And so we tried a bunch of those different experiments turns out marketing works like that's a good idea don't don't do the thing where you just translate and don't do any marketing that didn't work um but we also knew that actually just translating our app set the stage for organic growth in that country so if it couldn't be used um if it wasn't in japanese for example yes if you want to localize to japan there's a lot that goes into it it's not just changing the app right it's not just having um 
different words on the marketing page. It's a lot about the voice. How are you approaching this market? Those things. And um, we didn't really have the resources to do that. So we just decided, let's just translate to Japanese first. We'll see what kind of organic growth we get from that. And then we'll work on that. So, you know, we're trying to use our limited resources that we have, but like also understand that the the uh, investments that we make today can pay off in a big way in the future. Yeah, I think the thing that stands out to me about that harkens back to a previous comment you made about it's not just about the features. So you, it's not just like you change the the language that you can see your, your cards in. Um, it's about the experience of the people and how they use it. And so much of the definition of Trello um, comes down to the use cases uh, and letting those different markets sort of determine some of those use cases, I think, um, stands out as well. Now that you have so many markets that you're in, has that changed your product development process at all? Um, it's certainly gotten more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, we try to do it in a way that uh, reduces the risk of blockage from you know translation strings. And we actually tried the translation efforts in different ways, like... Um, we tried, you know, paid translations, uh, um, professional translations, but we also tried to do um, crowdsource translations as sure. well. So, you know, it, both of them have their advantages and disadvantages. I think if you're going to do one big chunk, like you're going to do the whole app, like as your first, you know, stage, you should just pay for it because you're going to get a better um, result. Mm -hmm. But on an ongoing basis, you can rely on your customers to help you do it. I think that's smart. And that's different than a lot of the ways that, that companies will try to internationalize. So let's talk about monetization a little bit. In the early days, you were really about usage and product marketing fit and uh, making sure that you had a product that could fit into the ways that people worked. How did you begin to think about monetization? I think the, you know, we didn't pay attention to it for a really long time. And I think the first time that it came to a head was when we found out people were not using Trello because we didn't have a way to pay for it. Like we'd see comments on Hacker News or somewhere on the web that people were like, I'm not going to use that. They're just going to shut it down. They're not making any money off of it and they're just going to take it away. And I think it was because at that time there were a lot of apps that that was happening to. So right. like even Google was shutting down pieces of it. Like Google Reader shut down. Um, there were other companies that were going under and people had invested in these products and they didn't do a good job monetizing. And so then they disappeared. People were like, oh, now I have to switch to something else, right? So it was funny because we were like, oh, wait, the friction is that people can't pay for it. So we need to add a way to pay for it to, to get rid of the friction. So we sort of laid down a dirt path, mm -hmm. let people pay us for a couple features. You know, don't spend too much time on it. Just give them a way to pay for the app. And that was our focus at the time. And then just go straight back to the product. At the time, you know, it's probably one of the biggest mistakes that we made was leaving this in place for too long. But at the time, we charged a flat fee per company. Yeah. So it didn't matter if you had one person or 200 people or 2,000 people. And so that worked for a little bit because our customers were all basically the same size. And, you know, we were just very early on. But over time, we look back and then we find, oh, this company is paying us four cents per user per year, right? Because they have thousands yeah. of users and they're not pay they're paying us 200 bucks. And it, it set up a really bad dynamic between us and the customer because they're saying, they're thinking of themselves as paying customers and we're thinking, you're not paying us anything, right. right? And that's a bad dynamic to have. And so we knew we had to fix that and pick a pricing model that scaled with the value that we were delivering to that company. 
um, which was tricky because in our case, we chose the per user pricing, which was understandable. Everyone gets it, but it's also hard to do in a collaborative environment because it adds friction. There's friction, yeah. yeah. So, but we just realized that enough people had come to understand that model that we thought it was worth it. So when you're thinking about developing a monetization model for your product, you know, there is the the user-based arm, there's, um, you know, the amount of usage, there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. If you're giving advice to somebody um, who's sort of at this stage right now and looking back at your own experience, what was the most telling thing for you that made you go down the user model? I think everything else sort of felt inorganic. Mm-hmm. Um, charging per board or list or card was something that you're going to have to teach people. They weren't just going to understand that and it was going to feel clunky. Um, and so we didn't want to invent a new thing. Like we were already trying to invent a new category of application. We didn't want to also invent a new way of pricing. You know, right. it's like focus, if you're going to do invention, like focus on the, the core of what you're trying to deliver, not like don't reinvent sales or don't reinvent marketing. Just, if you're, you know, like try to reduce your um, risks. And so this, people knew about this pricing model and they understood it. And when they compared it to complementary products, it was very easy to understand, right? They're like, I'm paying 10 bucks a month for Slack. And you're like, okay, and you're going to pay 10 bucks a month for Trello. And it was like, right. oh, okay, I get it. Um, it wasn't... Stick to the definitions they know. Yeah, they just got it already. And so I didn't have to teach people things. And, you know, in software, it's very tricky because a lot of times what you're doing is you're taking an abstract concept and you're making it a thing in the computer. And then you're trying to tell somebody about that thing. So you might you know, come up with some language, like in Salesforce, for example, they're like, this is a lead, this is an opportunity. Right. And you have to sort of learn that language. And every word you add to that dictionary is a hurdle that somebody has to jump through in order to really get into your app, right? And so the more words that you add and the more concepts that they have to learn, it's it's friction along the way. And your job is to reduce that as much as you can, right? So if you think about Trello, we have boards, lists, and cards, but those also borrow from the real world. So I think when somebody creates a Trello account and they get in there, they kind of just get it. Yeah. You don't have to tell them exactly what a board is or what a list is or what a card is. They kind of start to, oh, I kind of get this, right? You know, and they visually can understand it. And then as we delve more into concepts that are more paid concepts like power-ups or collections or, you know, teams and things like that, there's that's, you know, where you start have to explain more and you want that to be as smooth as possible. All right. So when you're looking ahead towards the future... And you're thinking about other features to add in, other power-ups to add in, really just other experiences that you want people to have with Trello. What are you watching in terms of the way that work is changing? Uh, what trends right now uh, are you keeping an eye on? So I think like, you know, early on we wanted, we wanted people to, we always imagined that we would sort of present this product to people and they would get how it works and that it wouldn't just be developer teams using it. it would be marketing it would be sales it would be hr it would be it mm-hmm. it would be the legal department you know and that was the vision but it was an experiment it was a hypothesis we didn't know if we could build something like that for people and so we borrowed that visual metaphor and over time um i've always kind of thought that yes that's our goal but we're but probably most people that use trello are still product people you know but we did a survey recently and we found that if you diagram the pie chart of like which department people are in when you look at their Trello usage it's basically every piece of the pie is an even size it's like it is all those departments that's awesome that was different than what you were expecting yes it is and I'm kind of like okay great and then on top of that then everyone that takes that metaphor the sort of visual card board metaphor and borrows that into and puts that into their app so there's 
there's apps like Smartsheet or Todoist or Microsoft made a clone of Trello called Planner. Mm-hmm. Um, you see a bunch of that that metaphor popping up in different places. And when people talk about that, they always use the term Trello. Like they, they're like, here's a Trello competitor or a Trello-like interface. And I'm kind of like, this is awesome. So the challenge for us is then, well, what's next? If that's um, now everyone kind of gets that and you're sort of establishing the position of, yeah, this is the the core unit, the Trello board, and people get it and they're starting to understand it. What's next? How do you let them understand that Trello is so much more than just, you know, a, you can you can do so many different things with it. Like you could build your applicant tracking system in it. You could build your, your CRM in it. You could um, bring in all your different workflows and tie them together so that you're running your whole business operations in Trello. And I think like as we think forward to all those teams and how they work together and being at the center of helping them figure out where they're going and where they are and how they're going to get there. Um, that's what we're trying to imagine. Michael Pryor, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's been a really interesting conversation. I wish you guys all the best luck. Thank you so much. This November, the Growth Show team will be at Inbound 2016. The lineup includes big names like Anna Kendrick, Tanisi Coates, Michael Strahan, and Alec Baldwin. And that's just to name a few. For more information and tickets, go to inbound.com. I really hope to see you there.